Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In all of our prior episodes, we've tried really hard to present evidence from this case through an unbiased, unfiltered lens. So in compiling information from sources, I've tried to pull from sources that the one side doesn't necessarily give a lot of credit to because it doesn't line up with their theory and vice versa. And the point of that was really to try to present as much of the information that is at least somewhat credible or reliable or could be considered credible or reliable for you guys to really hear and think through and, and sort of hopefully kind of come to your own at least thoughts or opinions about the case without being you know overly tainted by the influences and people's opinions. And if there's one thing that just rings true throughout this case, it's that everybody who has spent any amount of time on it seems to form an opinion and then hold to that opinion uh, as firmly as possible to the point of really not considering another person's or the other side's point of view or taking into account any information that doesn't perfectly fit that narrative or line up with it. And that's dangerous. That's just a dangerous place to be. We saw the same thing. It really just echoes the way it was between the police department and the district attorney's office. They accused the other of coming up with a theory and then trying to make all the evidence and investigation support that theory. And it seems like it's the same thing out amongst the public opinion. Yeah. And quite frankly, I think it's that kind of uh, divisiveness and that kind of just pushing to the extremes and, and not really considering things with an open mind that causes cases like this to struggle to be solved. And, you know, you see it in the competing resignation letters and you see it in the books that have been published in the years since from different folks who fall on different sides of this debate. And honestly, at the end of the day, all of these people want the same thing, right? They want this case to be solved. They want there to be some form of justice for John Benet Ramsey. And frankly, that's what we want to. And so hopefully, I'm sure you've had some questions or you've maybe you've heard some things and you've thought, well, I don't agree with that. Or why are you including that? Or some of this seems kind of contradictory. Well, certainly there was a lot of contradictory statements and information presented in the last four episodes. And in this part, in our epilogue, our, our goal really now is to kind of step back take a 30,000 foot view, talk about some things, maybe make a couple corrections or offer some insights that we didn't in the moment to try to avoid attaining it too much. And then also just share sort of where we fall on the case. You know, we weren't there. We don't know. Uh, we don't have the answers. And if we did, we'd be a Boulder PD giving them to them. But uh, just to kind of give our personal take on the way we see the evidence and how this all plays out. We also have gotten a lot of great feedback from listeners on YouTube and on the podcast out on all the different platforms. We've gotten a ton of feedback, some of it extremely smart, that's inspired us to go dig a little bit deeper and find answers to questions that we didn't even see were relevant before. So thank you to all that have chimed in and given us some thoughts and some additional information. There's a lot of information in this deal. You know, what are 27, 20. 27 years worth, I guess. And it yeah, has been dug into and turned upside down several different ways. And so there are many different players who've documented and written books and whatnot. There's just a, a lot out there. And I wouldn't want to begin to say that we've come close to uncovering all of it. Yeah. I, and frankly, I mean, just the amount of information in this case and the things that have taken place you could probably, you know, create a podcast that would have a new episode every week for the next 10 years to, to even try to cover it all. I mean, it is exhaustive. And 
you know, our show, we try to keep it a little bit more sh- on the on the shorter side. We try to get out outside the, you know, keep it with the facts and put things straightforward in front of you. But with this one, you know, it, it was hard to do that. You know, Bob doesn't like to do more than two parts. Uh, and I told him going into it, we do our best to keep it two parts. And, you know, here we are with four parts and an epilogue. So, uh, but <laughs> I think. <laughs> right. We're working on uh, part 742A-6. But you're right. Even the distilled version of this case is rather complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, I think we can go ahead. I, w- I want to jump into a few different things uh, to talk about. And the first one is with the 911 call. In one of the earlier episodes, we had the 911 call and we presented it in the original audio and then also the enhanced audio that's been kind of worked over. And some people have claimed that they could hear uh, certain things, uh, particularly they claim that that you could hear John, Patsy, and Burke Ramsey all talking in that enhanced audio. And we didn't really dive into what we thought about it too much in the episode. Uh, and so now we, we want to take a chance to do that. That's Bob, right. And I tell you, we're just going to put this to bed right now. What you heard at the end of that tape was Santa Claus reading the Declaration of Independence. But only if you play it backwards. Right. Yeah. And so I think maybe we made a little bit of a comment during the episode about how uh, kind of maybe tilted our hand a little bit. But we we talked off the recording about this being sort of like in those uh, ghost hunter shows where, you know, you have the EVPs and this and, you know, oh, well, this is where the ghost said that. And it seemed kind of like that sort of a situation. And so uh, as Bob mentioned, you know, thanks to one of our uh, listeners who reached out and really gave us, I mean, has just been wonderful for us to hear their feedback and, and also to kind of give us some ideas uh, from Susan. I uh, did, did a little digging on these essentially audio illusions. And a lady named Diana a Dutch is a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego. And she is, from what I can tell, like the leading researcher on psychology of music and also anything that deals with this auditory type stuff. This is her area of expertise by far. And she's put out some some interesting publications. One of them, she refers to uh, phantom words. And so she talks about, and she's done some studies where essentially she took a track that contained two words or a single word composed of two syllables and it's just repeated over and over again. And then this is played through these loudspeakers in stereo and you have somebody listen to it. And so, you know, there's one on the right side, one on the left side, and it's just almost like gibberish. But the the phenomenon that happens with this is that while you're listening, you start to just hear random words that aren't there. Uh, and she's done this time and time again with different folks, students and whatnot, and has even done it with people who are naturally um, who speak other languages than English as their first language. And she notes that she's done this with speakers who were um, native Spanish, Mandarin, Cantonese, Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, uh, French, German, Italian, all these different languages. And that they will say that they even hear foreign words in these tracks, even though they're, they're just not there. And, you know, we see this, uh, if you spend any time on the internet, maybe depending on your age, this might age you a little bit. There was the Yanni versus Laurel videos that came out where depending on the frequency that you were more likely to hear, you might hear the name Yanni being said versus the name Laurel. And more recently on TikTok and YouTube, 
uh, kind of took it by storm. There was the green needle versus brainstorm. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it real quick, check it out. There's videos. What's interesting about these is uh, particularly the green needle brainstorm one. When you hear the audio, if you're reading the word brainstorm, or if you're reading the word green needle, it influences which one you hear. So, and you can, there's all these tricks like this with these illusions where uh, you can influence what you hear by reading along with it. And you think uh, our brains are programmed to do this. If we're in a place where there's lots of noise, we might not actually hear all of the speech, but our brain fills in the gaps for us. This is all, I mean, there's no question about it. this is how our brains work. And so in a case like this, where you have this enhanced audio, and then people say, oh, this is what I hear. And this is who I hear saying it. Well, you know, like on the CBS, uh, I'm going to put it in air quotes, documentary, but the, the little TV program that they did on uh, on this case in 2016, you know, they play the subtitles down at the bottom and then you're like, oh, well, yeah, I can hear that. Well, you know, they could have put subtitles down at the bottom that said a lot of different things. And you probably would have heard that based on this audio. Well, if it's not Santa Claus reading the Declaration of Independence, then I'm just flummoxed. I don't know what to tell you. I don't hear anything in there and I have watched and read and listened to many different assessments of that audio and everything you're saying. Yeah. Makes total sense to me. There's sounds on there. Now, but what are those sounds? Are they part of the tape? Are they part of the fact that this is a used tape? And most people probably aren't old enough to remember what that was like when you used a, a cassette tape or something. And by the time you re-recorded it over about the third time, things didn't quite sound like they did the first time. And these things have been out, the Yanni Laurel, the Green Needle Brainstorm, those sort of things have been out with audio and with pictures and things, and people see or hear different things. What you see, what any person sees, is not necessarily reality. It's what your senses said to your brain and got translated into your reality. That's a really good point. And, uh, you know, that's how we can often have uh, different people perceive different things from the same event or the same instance, the same circumstance. So essentially, I, I, for me, at least this 911 call falls into that category of uh, it really doesn't do anything for me. That audio at the end, I don't put anything in that. I just don't. I can't tell you that whatever was for sure not said there. But I'm not going to bet you any money that something certainly was said there because I don't hear it. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I can't definitively tell you that, you know, they didn't have a whole uh, posse of 47 people in the background singing Christmas carols, maybe. But for me, I, I'm with you. I don't hear it. So that kind of leaves that that enhancement 911 call whole thing, which, you know, in that TV series in 2016, they kind of rely on the whole point of that enhanced audio. You know, supposedly that proves that Burke was awake because you can hear him talking at the time of the 911 call. And if he's awake, then the Ramses lie about him being awake. And if they're lying about him being awake, then they're lying about other things, which supports this notion that, you know, that they're, it's all. I don't think it's that easy, but, and, and we've got more of those. Oh, if this is true, then everything else has to be a lie. We've got more of that to go through. And I just think that they're, they're pretty bad, bad arguments. But can we talk about John and the mail for a minute? Because when we did the uh, the first episode, I think it was, where we talked about John Ramsey going off to get the family mail, my first reaction to that, probably like many people, was like, um, really? That, you know, at this point, while your daughter's been kidnapped and you're just going out to get the mail, that sounds weird. But I watched an interview with John where 
two things were revealed to me. One, it didn't sound like he had to go anywhere to get the mail. And two, the reason he was interested in his mail that morning is because he was under the impression his daughter had been kidnapped and was being held for ransom. And he was looking for any communication from the kidnappers. Right. And and that's a great point. So John has said that. Now, of course, the anti-John people. And again, sadly, this whole case boils into these two camps that just, you know, I get it, right? I don't know who did it. And I'm, I'm open to the possibility that anybody, you know, who could have potentially done it could have done it because that's how we need to think about this case. Um, but you're right. So he said, yeah, you know, I was looking through the mail because there might be something important there about what's going on, wh where she is and what's happened to her. And this notion that he left to get the mail comes really directly from Linda Arndt's report. And it was reported in a really long Vanity Fair write up. And then, of course, you know, the media, they ran with all this stuff. In her report, Detective Arndt says, quote, at an unknown time between approximately 1040 in the morning and noon, John Ramsey left the house and picked up the family's mail. I was not present when John left. I did witness John Ramsey opening his mail in the kitchen, end quote. So what I take away from this is she's kind of supposing that he left to get the mail, but notes that she wasn't present when John left. So she didn't, to me, that I read that like she didn't see him leave. She can't say for sure that he left. She just knows he wasn't in her you know, she didn't see him during this time period until the point she notes around noon when she sees him opening mail in the kitchen, which is very different from he grabbed his keys and said, hey, Linda, I'm going down to the post office to get my mail. I'll be back in an hour. And what kind of makes this more interesting is that the house uh, in many sources is the house had a mail slot and many sources say that they received their mail at home. Now, the Ramseys did it, or RDI camp, as if you spend any time on Reddit, you'll see that's a, you'll, you'll need to learn abbreviations very quickly. Um, they would say that, aha, you know, John lied and he he didn't go get the mail and he was just uh, covering up his crime and he's doing it right under Detective Arndt's nose. But, you know, I think an important thing to just step back without trying to draw conclusions and just think about what the facts tell us here is Detective Arndt at this point in the morning is the only police officer in this house. And you've got John and Patsy, you've got the fleet and his wife, and I think you've got the Fernies, I believe around this time, we've got the victim's advocate people. I mean, there's a whole house full of people at this house, at this crime scene where a supposed kidnapping's taking place. And you have one police officer who's trying to manage all of that. Uh, that's unfair to her. That's literally impossible. It's bad. It's just not you wouldn't want things to be that way, but that's the situation she was in. I think that's important because regardless of who you think might have done it or who did do it, you have one police officer who's trying to keep an eye on everybody. And there's this period of time for about an hour and a half where, for her at least, she doesn't know where John is or what he's doing. Uh, well, where else would he have gone to get the mail? If that's the case that he went to get the family mail, then it should be pretty well established somewhere that they have a P.O. box or something like that, that he went to retrieve the mail from. And especially once they discovered this was a homicide, you would think if it was known that John left the house for some period of time, it would be incredibly important to the police to know exactly where he went and what he did during that time period that he left the house. I'm not saying that he left the house. I'm saying exactly what you're saying, which is he probably never did leave the house because if that were a fact, then that would have been incredibly important. 
Yeah, and and to be clear, I'm not saying there isn't information that exists that, that nails down exactly mm-hmm. where he is. But I tell you what, I have spent a lot of time. I mean, like an un just uh, just a ridiculous amount of time trying to 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 pin this down on. Okay, where was John Ramsey? Where where is a concrete source that tells me where J- John Ramsey was from 10:30 to noon? And I've looked through the transcripts of the statements where he was interviewed by police. There are two of those his transcript and a deposition inter- transcripts of interviews that he did on TV. And in none of these, does anybody ask him? So, you know, why did you go get the mail? I, I mean, I searched for the word mail and it's, it just doesn't exist. Right. Uh, and I, I read through it and there is no like, okay, well, you know, uh, detective Arndt said you left to get the mail. Why did you need to go get the mail? Where else did you go? Why did it take so long? Or what were you doing? Did you see anybody while you were out of the house? There's none of that. Uh, none of that at all, which leads me to believe that in her report, she just, you know, and I get it. You see some guy looking at the mail and you haven't seen him for an hour. So you, you just assume, oh, he went to get his mail, but I don't right. think and that's I, what and happened. And the size of that house, it would be pretty easy to not see someone for an hour. Right now I was able to find where there are some reports and these are in various books written by people close to the case that again, some people will discredit for various reasons that some say that he went up into Burke's room and was looking out the window with binoculars, kind of like looking down the street, cars and people and whatnot. Uh, There's also reports that he went into the basement before he and Fleet went down, um, that he spent, you know, some period of time down there. And uh, there's one report too, that uh, he had told, I believe it's his daughter's either fiance or husband or boyfriend at the time that later on in the day that he had found John Bonet at 11 a.m. And so, but again, you know, if, if that were the case, police would have just, I mean, like a dog with a bone with this kind of stuff. Uh, some of these things that you see reported on the fringes, it's like you have to take that through the lens of what do the investigators do with this? If this is true. Right, because like you said before, we're not looking at the actual reports and documentation. We're going by what's being reported and, we try to rely most heavily on the things that were said or written by those that were indirectly involved. Exactly. And, and that's part of why, you know, we're able to keep this a little bit on the shorter side. If we just talked about all of the information that exists in all of its forms, uh, that would be the podcast that would take 10 years to complete. Uh, so trying to really stick to those more first level primary sources for information or ones that are really close to it. Now, speaking on the importance of, you know, getting it right, uh, I did misspeak uh, in one of the earlier episodes about the Spider-Man. He is not a professor at the Colorado University. He's actually at Virginia Tech. His name is Dr. Brent Opal. But to the rest of my points, he is the spider guy. I think you called him spiderologist. Very well respected and renowned in that field. And uh, has been doing that for quite some time. But I just want to clarify, he's at Virginia Tech, not at a school in Colorado. All right. Something else that I pondered about during what I believe was during the first episode is when you had said that Arndt told John to go search the house top to bottom. And you said, well, he went to the basement and they started there and they went up and I observed that, hey, she said top to bottom and he went bottom to top. And our listener and new friend, Susan, was very uh, helpful in explaining some of that. 
So there may have been some logic in that. I didn't think anything of it other than, well, they've he slept on the third floor, so he's already been there. John Bonet's room's on the second floor. Obviously, they've already been there. And the first floor is where everyone is, so it would make, you know, obviously they just they just started on the bottom. And that, with a little more detail, is essentially what I think Susan said to us about there really was a reason they went bottom to top. Yeah, it just makes a lot of sense if you if you really step back for a second and think about it. And people are quick, like you said, to say, well, ha, she said top to bottom. And then they, you know, he ran to the basement because he knew. But I question, okay, let's put ourselves in John's shoes for a second. He's the he's the killer. He's involved in a cover-up, and he knows her body is down there. It's already, what, almost 1 o'clock, and the police are still clueless. If you're searching the house, it makes you look more suspicious if you immediately go down to the basement and then immediately find her. Why wouldn't you right. start somewhere else? Oh, you said top to bottom. Okay, yeah, we'll start upstairs, and we'll flounder around for a bit and then come down and whatever. And then I'll eventually I'll make my way down there and then, you know, gasp and find her and all that stuff. So I, I think there's a lot of that when you assume that they did it. If you put yourselves in that mindset of, okay, they, they were part of a cover up or they were somehow involved or whatever. A lot of the stuff that people point to it just, it's really bizarre. It's like, well, if they were trying to cover it up or they were involved in trying to avoid being implicated, they're doing a really weird, bad job of it. Right. I just observed that, like, within a few sentences, you had told me how she said, go search this place top to bottom, and he starts in the basement. So that was a, it, inter- it instantly clicked in my mind when it bottom or top, but I didn't make a whole big deal of it. I wasn't like, aha, so he must have done it. And to add to what you're saying, John's obviously a pretty smart guy. So that would be a pretty dumb thing to do. I'm not saying it's not possible. I don't know. Like you said, I wasn't there. Who did it? I, I'm not in either of these camps. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to me that supports this or that, but what you're just saying, John's a smart guy. So why would he do such an incredibly dumb thing? And it sounds like during the process of this morning, he wasn't just sitting there waiting for the police to tell him what to do. He's looking through the mail to see, is there something in here that can tell me something? He's, he's looking around, trying also in his mind, probably racking his brain to figure it out. Those are all plausible thoughts, I believe. And that's something else that when you see something that's out of place or you hear about something in this case that's out of place, I think one of the first thoughts should be is, is there a reasonable explanation for that to have happened? And if the answer is yes, it doesn't mean, okay, that person's innocent, but it means, okay, well, that could be reasonably explained by X or Y. So what else do we have that there's no reasonable explanation for? Yeah, absolutely. And, And that's part of this whole people get blinders, I think is what I see in a lot of this, too. If it doesn't fit what my theory of the case is, then I'm just going to ignore it or somehow find a way to try to you know, minimize it or whatever. And that's really dangerous. You, you got to just look at everything for what it is and stack it into the columns it goes into and go from there. Yeah, or worse yet, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're a dumbass. Obviously, this one or that one did it. Well, I hate to tell you, there's a whole lot in a lot of these crimes that don't make no sense. And I come not, back... Not, not just this one. Yeah, the very first episode we ever did on the podcast uh, with Dorothy, uh, you know, the co- I don't, it's hard to believe in coincidences, but man, uh, Charles got, you know, the police thought, no, you did this. You you definitely, you had to do this. It had to be you. And the profilers said, oh yeah, it was, it, you know, probably him based on this evidence. And then at the end of the day, like, no, it's some crazy wacko who's 
you know, strung out on drugs that Charles had given a ride to just a little bit before that. I mean, it's, it's right. so crazy. You almost can't make it up. And that stuff is rare, but it happens. And so you have to leave room for the possibility that whatever the truth is, it is, it's bizarre. And it's something that you maybe haven't considered. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't make sense. Doesn't mean impossible. And right. I, I get, okay, follow the stuff that seems the most possible and the most logical. But again, 1996, we're darn close to 30 years here. So you know, everything should be an option within reason, except for, oh, did you have anything more on the, the going to the basement first deal? No, that, that's good. That's all I want to talk about. So when, when I say everything should be an option within reason, that's when we get to this damn pineapple. I know that's and, your favorite your favorite part of the case. Uh, yeah, I just, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And I cannot believe you sent me that Reddit thread that was 375 miles long <laughs> of people arguing over pineapple. I will say that the original poster on that one tried to take a pretty balanced approach. But of course, it quickly degraded into people just shouting at each other that, you're wrong. This one did it. And this is what the pineapple proof. So the, I guess the theory Help me here if I'm making it too simple, but what it boils down to is if pineapple was eaten in that kitchen after they got home from their Christmas party deal, then it proves the Ramseys were lying and therefore they killed her. Okay. Someone in the Ramsey house killed her. Is that what so the, I, I, I want to clarify one thing and then you, you, you're on the right trail, but I want to clean it up a little bit. So first of all, and again, yeah, shout out Susan, because uh, she pointed this out. It's often incorrectly referred to as being in the kitchen, but it's actually in this. Uh, it's like a breakfast room tape. It's on a, the bowl is found on a breakfast room table, which is kind of off. You know, we've got the blueprints. We've put them out on social. You can see exactly where that is. But so it's not it's not actually the kitchen. To your point, there's a there is one thing that I think it concretely could help with, which is given where the pineapple is in her digestive tract, which I'll let you pronounce that word later. There's a special word. It's in her small intestine as a specific place starts with a D. Anyway, Duodenum. thank you. Um, that that tells you that it hasn't been, you know, fully digested, whatever, whatever. And so it kind of narrows a window of, well, yeah, we can't say for certain, but it kind of limits the the window of time between, well, if you know when she ate this pineapple, then you can kind of work from that when you're trying to rough shot come up with a time of death. Because remember, the medical examiner in this case, it wouldn't wouldn't give an estimated time of death. Now, there have been some, you know, they've worked and figured out this window. And from everything I've read, the window falls somewhere in the vicinity of like, it seems like most sources narrow it to, you know, somewhere around midnight to whatever, like four in the morning or something, probably falling earlier in the evening. Some people have said as early as like 10 o'clock. And that's where understanding if you know, okay, this is the pineapple she ate and this is when she ate it, it could help you to kind of potentially, I'm not saying certainly, but it could potentially help you to understand time of death. To your point about where people get so hung up on this. Yeah. So the, the, this is where there's there's two kind of things that propel this into being this big controversial piece of evidence. One is the Ramseys swear. I mean, and you read their interviews and, and see their stuff and they're just like, we don't we don't know where this we don't know how this came to be. Um, Patsy says, you know, I would have never put a big fancy spoon like that in with this little tiny bowl. 
Uh, I just wouldn't have served it that way. Like we wouldn't have done that. John says, I don't know why it's got, apparently they had like real silver silverware, which this spoon was a tablespoon size, nicer silverware spoon. And so he says, well, we had like, you know, teaspoons and, and, you know, regular silverware we used every day that that would have been what I would have expected, you know, somebody in our house to use versus this thing. And so there's talk about, well, did, did the victims advocates who brought bagels and other stuff, um, did they bring this fruit and did they set it out and, or did somebody else have it or, you know, where did it come from and how did it come to be there? So a lot of people look at it and say, well, why, you know, the Ramseys are lying. This shows that they're lying because they're lying about the pineapple. So what else are they lying about? They're lying about other stuff. Thinking that, well, when they came home, you know, they, you know, the kids, one or both had a snack or the Ramseys let them have a snack or gave them a snack or whatever. Uh, the other part of it is it goes into that 2016 TV show. I want to refer to it as a documentary, but frankly, like the, the more I've watched all of this and the more I've read and learned, it's, I don't think it's really fair to call it a documentary. So the TV show that was aired in 2016, where the, you know, they came to the conclusion that it, you know, Burke did it. Uh, and sort of the the roundtable spitballing hypothesis of what happened that night was Burke got a snack. It was this bowl of pineapple. Uh, you know, his fingerprints are on the bowl. His fingerprints are on this glass. And, you know, John Bonet must have come downstairs and tried to snatch pineapple. And then he whacked her over the head. And, and then from there you get into, you know, well, the parents then had to be involved because the rest of the stuff that happens seems a little far-fetched for a nine-year-old. Although some people think you go to the internet and there's people that think anything. There's some people who think Burke just did it all by himself. You know, he was mad. He whacked her over the head. He strangled her. He made the, the, well, we'll talk about the thing that's referred to as a grot later, but you know, he made that device. He did all the stuff. Everything was him. It was all him. I, I think that's all that's, that's given a nine-year-old a, a lot of credit for what he could accomplish. Um, yeah, and it looks like I watched the the interviews of him, and what I see is a he reminds me a lot of you as a kid. He looks like a, a freaking gnat on meth with his attention span. <laughs> uh, so I think it's a stretch to think he pulled this whole thing off. I just don't know how you get that far down in a rabbit hole on a theory of aha, the brother, the pineapple. Yeah. yeah, in the kitchen with the flashlight because of the pineapple chunk. And let me tell you a couple other things on this pineapple deal. There was a, a case. It was actually in Colorado. This dude got mixed up with this crazy chick. Imagine that. <laughs> and she killed him. And eventually they figured out she killed him. But one of the big sticking points is determining his time of death and looking at what was in his stomach contents and his last meal. They found onions in his stomach contents. But the last known meal that they knew about, where do you go for breakfast on whichever day? Well, he owned this hardware store and he'd go to this little diner that was a few doors down, had the same exact breakfast every single day, all the time. So they go down, you know, where does he have onions in his breakfast? No, he has this, this, and this. There's no onions. He doesn't take any onions in whatever. Like, okay, but he's got onions in his in his stomach. So obviously the breakfast wasn't his last meal. They're like, there's got to be something more to this because we feel like breakfast was his last meal. But if there's onions in there, it doesn't line up. So they go down, the cop goes down one morning, asks the same cook, says, look, can I just like stand behind you and just watch you do, do the breakfast meal? And the cook's like, yeah, knock yourself out. So he's watching, he's watching the cook 
ends up cooking the same thing that he cooked for this dude every single morning. And he watches and he notices that on the same grill over on a different side, the cook was chopping onions for this other meal and scrapes off the spatula. But on, a little onion or two ends up over in the meal is the no onions meal. Mm. Like, oh, duh. Aha. Uh -huh, there it is. I mean, that's like the, whatever you call it, the red herring or the aha, that even though what we're looking at, we're looking at the same thing over and over again on paper and it's not adding up. Well, that's because there's some other little piece over here missing that throws the whole thing off. And as far as keeping track of this six-year-old who has some pineapple in her system, now you've had her out at a whole big old party and then you're at home in this gigantic house. And you're supposed to absolutely know, yes or no, did a chunk of pineapple ever enter her body within the last eight hours? Well, hell if I know. <laughs> I mean, get, get, cut me some slack. I don't get where that's a big aha. And two, you told us in, I think, the first couple of episodes about the family and people that showed up that morning at the Ramsey house. There's a million different ways this bowl of nasty pineapple and milk could have ended up out where it is. Now, I would like to know, and somebody pointed out, I can't remember exactly who it was, said pineapple and milk is kind of a weird combo. So if that was a family treat, then you, you would think that would be weird for just some stranger to show up and do, unless it was like a local delicacy or something. That sounds disgusting to me. <laughs> someone else said well hey you know this it's been described as a milky substance was it really milk you know what, what do we what do we know yeah i mean honestly that's something that again you know and if you, you can't tell me definitively and show me on the videotape that okay well at 10 p.m on the 25th there was no bowl of pineapple here but at 9 a.m on the 26th the bowl of pineapple was sitting there I'm not real convinced that bowl hadn't been there for a couple of days. And as far as the small bowl and the big spoon, that sounds like something that kids would do. Like, uh, you know, maybe John Bonet and, and Burke. And no, I'm not saying that Burke beat her over a chunk of pineapple. That seems a little bit wild to me. That's your favorite I, theory in this whole case. But I guess what I'm saying is between the... The fact that our memories suck and we think we remember everything and the number of people that were in and out of there, there's just a whole lot of reasons why this silly bowl of pineapple could have been sitting there and the pineapple could have been in her belly. And we're so focused on, oh my gosh, it was the pineapple that was in her system is consistent with the pineapple that was in the bowl. All right, so maybe the pineapple came from the same place. Maybe she grabbed a hunk out of the refrigerator and maybe the victim's advocates or whatever made up this weird bowl of stuff. Yeah. Maybe maybe the kids decided to put it out for Santa. I think Susan brought that up too. What if they left it out as a treat for Santa the night before? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly lots of possibilities. I think people get hung up because it's like nobody claims it. But like you said, you know, people forget stuff. Things happen. There are all kinds of uh, ways that, you know, we probably haven't even thought of that could potentially explain how this got there. I do want to drill down a little bit, though, because you, you've kind of touched on some things that I, I I think it's, you know, for people who, who want to wig out on the pineapple or go down the rabbit hole. Like I said, so it, it wasn't this, this wasn't in her stomach. This was in her small intestine in her. You want to say it again? Duodenum. Thank you. I'm just going to let you say that every time. 
according to the autopsy report, the proximal portion of the small intestine contains fragmented pieces of yellow to light green tan apparent vegetable or fruit material, which may represent fragments of pineapple. Okay, so from the autopsy, we just have, it could be pineapple, but it got a little more detailed than that, according to the investigator, the detective on the case, Steve Thomas. Remember, this is the guy who had the very long resignation letter from Boulder PD. I read it in, uh, I think it was episode, the third part of this. And he testified in his deposition that there were tests beyond the autopsy that were performed on these contents. Specifically, another detective was tasked to work with some experts at a local university. Reports were compiled, and ultimately, according to Thomas in his deposition, he says the conclusion was, quote, that it was a fresh pineapple consistent, fresh pineapple with a rind, end quote. Then he goes on to clarify, because the attorney was like, can you, what do you mean? And uh, Thomas goes on to clarify, quote, pineapple consistent down to the rind with pineapple found in the bowl in the kitchen, end quote. So you got that on the one side. But then, and this is where, you know, we're, we're presenting everything. And I'm not saying that I'm like, whatever. Some people argued that it wasn't just pineapple that was in her system, that based on a, a book written by Paula Woodard, uh, Unsolved, the John JonBenet Ramsey murder 25 years later, uh, Ms. Woodard claims that there were cherries and grapes also present with the pineapple. And she, <laughs> I know, right? Like, ah, and imagine, so you're part of the IDI or the intruder did it camp. And you've got this pesky pineapple that, you know, the RDI camp keeps throwing in your face. So now Miss Woodard comes out with a book that says, well, wait a second. It wasn't just pineapple. It was cherries and grapes and the face you're making. I mean, I, I'm right there with you, but let me, let me get this point out and then we can talk about it. So in the book, she says, you know, there's grapes and cherries also present along with the pineapple. She bases uh, her assertion on the murder book summary index that she has. As best I can tell, this is most likely, and I, I'm not, this is me speculating here because I don't find any clarity on exactly where the source of this is. But I think it's probably from the DA's office uh, or or somebody affiliated with the DA's office or, or an investigator who at least maybe will, fell more in line with the DA's theory that the intruder theory made more sense than, than the Ramsey theory. And I say that based on just some of the contents because you can see some of the pages. Uh, Miss Woodard has put them out there. Now, I have no reason to believe that this murder book summary index that she has and that she's using isn't real. I, I don't have any knowledge to that at all. But the first thing you have to assume in order to kind of go down this trail is that it is legit. Then the weakness to it is that it's a summary compiled by, from what I've been able to find, an unidentified author or authors of these other reports and statements and information. So people like me would call this, you know, double hearsay at least because, you know, we're not looking at the report, the, the, the primary source. We're looking at somebody's summary of the report, which was created by somebody else and now is being summarized yet again and then provided in this book that's been written by Miss Woodard. I say all that to say that doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean it's not accurate. That doesn't mean it's not helpful. But you just have to look at this stuff and say, well, okay, this isn't a, I'm not reading an autopsy report. I'm not looking at a photo from the crime scene. This is somebody who's written down sort of a summary of this person talked to this expert who said X, or according to this report, there were cherries and grapes. So there's an extra level of whatever here that you kind of have to go, okay, if that's true, maybe, maybe that's helpful. Uh, I have no reason to think it's 
a lie. I have no reason not to believe it, but in terms of just credibility sources, understanding things, fact checking, it's not as good in my opinion, is like looking at the report, which if we believe these, this summary index, there is a report and it exists. And hopefully it says that so we could trust it. But, you know, it puts us in that space where you just have to think about the sources and take everything with an appropriate grain of salt, I think. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like you're listening to uh, grandpa tell you what the doctor said about grandma. That's That's all very nice. I'd like to see the chart, please. Yeah. And it doesn't mean grandpa's wrong. Right. You know, and that's the thing about this is I'm not saying that her book is incorrect. I'm not saying her source is no good. Uh, it's, it, it's just, I can't independently personally verify the veracity of that source. And so it makes me have to kind of step back and say, well, I'm going to think about this as if this were true, but I'm also going to think about it as if it's not true, which frankly I've done with everything in this case, because I feel like that's how all the evidence is in this case, except for very, very limited amount of evidence. Right. And like you said, if you're you're relying on a piece of the puzzle, if any piece of the puzzle is inaccurate, not by anyone's fault, you know, it can be totally non-malicious. It can be just human beings are human beings. But if you're a doctor treating a patient and you, you run some tests and everything about it just seems like it's X disorder, what a pick a disorder, mm-hmm. but the test came back negative. What you don't do is you don't say, well, I ruled this out. The test is negative. It can't be that. So now let's go do all these other tests and let's figure out all these other things. Let's bang our head on the table. The first thing you do is rerun the test. Let's make sure we're that piece of the puzzle is is accurate, that we don't just have an anomaly, that we don't have a, a weird test error or something. So I guess what I'm saying is that kind of applies, you know, it makes sense in here too with these pieces of the puzzle. If you are hung up on this this chunk of pineapple having to be even part of the puzzle and then make it an accurate part of the puzzle, that, that could cause you some, some issues. And some of these, we can't figure out what the answer is. We don't know for sure. Uh, which is certainly, that's, that's part of what makes this case interesting and frustrating at the same time is because it is like a puzzle and it is like a puzzle where, you know, you've, you've, I think you for one Christmas, you actually got me a puzzle that was like all one color. I think it was like all white. Uh, and, and it's just cool. difficult because, you know, it makes it that much more challenging. Yeah. Now, imagine if that puzzle was all one color, but it's a thousand piece puzzle, but there's a thousand and well, there's 10,000 pieces in the box. Right. And you don't know which thousand are the good ones. Right. So you're like, I don't even know if this piece goes to this puzzle. Yeah. All right. So are you uh, you satisfied that we've uh, talked about this pineapple long enough? I'm sick of the damn pineapple. I just think it's a big red herring that doesn't mean a whole lot. Prove me wrong. Convince me. I'm not saying it absolutely can't. If something comes up that, aha, we've got the smoking gun. Look, we found video of whoever, the next door neighbor, crawling down the chimney with this bowl of pineapple. Or we've got, we've got video of one of the Ramseys putting it out there. I just, until there's some reason to think that's super important, I, that's one of those puzzle pieces I'd be sitting over to the side and saying, if it looks like that's going to fit in somewhere, we'll grab it again. But for now, I got to quit trying to flip this one nine different ways to make it fit somewhere. That's fair. All right. So moving on along. A lot of people also make a big deal about the $118,000 demand in the supposed ransom letter. Uh, and, and I didn't share this before and I didn't put it in the outline cause I want to get your, uh, reaction off the cuff here. There, there are some people, or at least one person whose theory is that the $118,000 is a reference 
to Psalm 118 and that there was a Bible in the Ramsey household that was earmarked or open to Psalm 118 and that essentially they're into like child sacrifice. And so that's what this is all about. What? All right, <laughs> right. Look, now, first you told me that the 118,000 was coincidental because it was pretty close to the amount of a recent bonus John had gotten. So that proves that it had to be someone in the family that knew that was the amount, which seemed stupid to me because a whole lot of people are going to know that freaking amount from payroll people, people in the office. Apparently it was laying out in the mail, whatever. It was right. dumb. But now you're telling me it's a Bible verse, something about child sacrifice. That's the connection. Well, we're not we're not going to actually dive into that theory. I just point that out to say, like, if you could think of a wackadoo crazy theory, somebody is a proponent of it on Reddit right now. Clearly, yeah, I don't. There's no evidence for that. It's pretty freaking dumb because even if you are going to talk about sacrifice, which is so Old Testament, I don't think it was very common to be sacrificing children. You know, other than that one dude, what was it? Uh, the dude that was going to cut the kid in half or something. You know him. What's his name? This is fun. I I, I want to make you Google it. Was it Solomon? Yeah. Well, then they, okay. they were arguing over the kid, and he said, "Okay, fine. We'll cut him in half, and you each get a half." And then right, but he was never going to cut the kid in half. He just needed right. them to one of them to go. Okay, this is a bad idea. <laughs> it got yeah. real. Yeah. So yeah, back he, just, he did a dad trick, but this is mm -hmm. not. I mean, look at what happened to this kid. This is not child. This is not sacrifice. Shit, this ain't Santa Rio. What are we doing? Yeah, no, it's just nonsense. And I, I don't want to dive into that. Uh, so you're right to talk about the John Ramsey. It, and it was the prior year's bonus, my understanding. So it had been, you know, earlier back, you know, at the beginning of 96. And now we're in December of 96 that he had received this uh, 118-ish thousand dollar bonus, which the police and, and other investigators, you know, were quick to say, well, wait a second, maybe that's where, you know, Patsy wrote the letter. Patsy came up with this number because it was fresh in her head. But again, I say, okay, these are educated people. They both graduated from college. He's got a master's, runs a company. These, these are not stupid people. You if know what it is. The house number of John's doctor's, plumber's, daughter's, cousin's boyfriend was 118. Probably. But you, you just think about it, all right? So you, let's say you're in on it. You're the Ramses, and you are. you either did it or you're covering it up because Burke did it or whatever. Somehow somebody in your circle did this. And now your thought is, okay, after I've, you know, made some weird sex type looking device that I'm strangling her with and hid her body in the basement, we're going to write a note and make it seem like a kidnapping, which again, you think if you were going to do that, you'd, I don't know, take her body out of the house and put it anywhere else other than in the basement. But that aside, so you decide to write this ransom letter, not a note because it's too long. Why on earth? And it, and it clearly it's, you know, and I'll talk about my thoughts about the letter in general later. But why would you use a number that ties back to you if you're trying to hide your involvement? That makes no sense. Also, and these people had a ton of money. And if you know that, like, well, it doesn't matter, you might make it a number that's realistic like you could do. But why wouldn't you make it a number that, you know? Well, this, this guy had millions of dollars. Why wouldn't you say $5 million, $1 million, 500000 I mean, to them, you know, $500,000 is probably like what you and me would think of when we think of like a, a $5 biggie bag, you know? 
I just think it's unbelievable that if they're writing this to cover up their involvement, that they would use a number that's so weird and ties to them in any way, shape or form. It's another one of those that it doesn't make sense. I'm not convinced that it's impossible, but I don't see the aha. This proves, well, it doesn't prove shit. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, and and again, I don't I don't know who did it. And I I don't think I can't sit here and say that I'm 100 percent convinced that anybody is not, you know what I mean? Like you said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in a place where I can firmly say with uh, no, no doubt in my mind whatsoever that it's not this person or that person, or it is this person or that person. So I'm glad you, you point that out. Another interesting person that we didn't talk about before that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, th- th- and this is where it comes back to, like you said, you know, so the number's weird and it matches a bonus, but does that mean that's the only thing it could be. Well, maybe there's a piece of the puzzle over here we just don't know about. And an example, then I'm not saying this guy did it, but here's an example of where uh, what we would consider a coincidence kind of shows why you have to be so careful in reviewing evidence and in trying to follow it. There's a guy named Jeff Merrick who had worked for Access Graphics who was let go. And he claimed that he was owed money for work and whatever else and that Access Graphics, and I'll remind you, that's John Ramsey's company that he formed, um, that they owed him money. You care to guess how much that he claimed that he was owed by Access Graphics? I don't know. Something really specific, I'll bet. Yeah, like $118,000. From reading things about this, and there's not a ton of detail that I could find, but from what I could find about it, it looks like he did get some money. Like they kind of reached maybe an agreement. I don't know if you would call it a settlement. I don't know how formal the proceedings were, but they reached some sort of a resolution where he got some money, but not the full amount. And apparently he, you know, he was pretty bitter and pretty upset. Uh, my understanding, he actually went on a kind of a local radio talk, kind of shock jock type thing with his lawyer. And they talked a little bit about uh, this because the investigators had actually went and they got a writing sample, my understanding, from his wife. But he refused to give one and they asked him for a polygraph and he refused to do a polygraph. And his response to that was, uh, yeah, I'll get in line and do one after John does one. So, I mean, here's a guy that's, you know, at least somebody of interest that uh, there's there's this number again and who knows who else is out there where this number matters or means something or or whatever and that's the whole thing about like you said that there's a puzzle piece that's completely over here that we don't even know exists and it makes this make sense and we're trying to shove this puzzle piece that kind of fits but isn't perfect in the hole in its place yeah i think the 118 number is interesting but i don't, I don't see where it's a it's a smoking gun at this point. I, I think while we're talking about, you know, we're kind of adjacent to this ransom in air quotes letter. I think it makes sense to kind of jump into that a little bit before we detail anything. You know, what, do you have any general thoughts or, or feelings or ideas about the ransom letter just from a overall standpoint? I, that one, I, I, it's it's weird. I mean, it's just weird. It's weird the fact that it's so long. It's weird the way that it's constructed. I think I I told you then that it's either someone that has a very distinct writing style or someone that was writing in a way that was very distinctly different uh, than what they normally write. The fact that there were some a test run on the pad, that it was apparently written in the house on a pad in the house. It, it's just all weird. Everything about that note is weird. Yeah, I think no matter what camp you fall into, we put on whichever camp hat you want to wear. That thing is bizarre. I listened to a podcast that just came out recently. It's called The Consult. They did an episode where uh, these former FBI profilers, they kind of broke down 
just some general thoughts. They didn't try to say, oh, this is who did it or whatever. They just gave some some general thoughts and impressions about the contents. And I, I, I thought that was really good. You know, if this is something that interests you, check check them out. thought it was well done and I thought it was fascinating. I, for me, where I fall on this, I 100% believe whoever wrote it, it was not intended to be a ransom letter at all. I tend to think that it was written after she was already murdered. If not, I think whoever wrote it knew they were going to probably knew that they were going to do that and that this was going to happen. But I really think, I think it was done afterward for me. And this is where I kind of fall into this idea. You know, I'll tip my hand a little bit, but I lean a little more toward thinking that whoever did this was really out to get John. That's what it was about. And because the letter is just, it's, it's in this way that is very condescending and nasty to John. And yeah, well, Either way you slice it, whether it's somebody in the house or somebody outside the house that wrote the letter, and if we presume, we're not saying it is, but if we presume that the letter was written just as like a a throw-off thing after the murder, and you say, okay, somebody from an intruder, it's an intruder that did it, or it's somebody inside the house that did it, it still is weird that after the murder, someone would sit there and write that long of a letter just you know, to throw people off. That doesn't work for an intruder or an internal person. Because if it's an internal person, they're trying to throw the investigation off of finding this their dead daughter in the basement, which is just as dumb as someone from the outside sitting there writing this long letter. So it's bizarre. Regardless of who did it, it's bizarre. Well, I, so I, I, I mostly agree with you, but I disagree in a sense. I think there's one specific type of person that if if they're an intruder would do that you know we talked about uh the weirdo who killed the old guy in his Reese cups and just kind of hung out for a while yeah and in my mind if this is somebody who their their goal here is really to they've got some kind of beef and maybe john doesn't even know that this beef exists maybe it's a perceived beef or a perceived issue with john so that's why it's not necessarily on the investigator's radar or john's radar but here's somebody who has an issue who sees that that feels that they've been wronged and feels that john has really slighted them or done something terrible to them or or is a horrible person that deserves to be punished whatever somewhere in that category i could see where you know the act of doing the crime the murder that's one thing, but this person, it, the thing that's really going to like get them going isn't going to be that as much as it's going to be reveling in. Now I'm going to write this this note, this letter, where I'm just going to put my thumb in your eye. And maybe right, it's going to have everybody chasing their tails and all kinds of confused. Meanwhile, your dead daughter is going to be in your own basement right under your nose. Right. And there's some, there's a level of, one thing that they said in the, the console podcast that I thought was good, they, there's like this level of sarcasm to a lot of the points in the letter. And yes. and I, I hadn't really like put my finger on that word, but you know, you could pick up on it. Um, but I think that's, it's brilliant because it is true. There, there is this sarcastic tone throughout it. And I think when you start to picture an offender who's coming after John, who wants to see John suffer then a lot of it just starts to make more sense. Like the irony of feeling like, okay, is she kidnapped? But like, why is this so weird? And then, oh, she's she's here. She's actually here. She's already dead. There's nothing I could have done. And it it falls in line too with a lot of these quotes or almost quotes that are in the letter that reference these movie lines. When you look at the characters in the movies, it gives you somebody, this picture of somebody who is is almost like fascinated, enthralled with, and fantasizing about being that kind of person right 
Um, like he's watched Dirty Harry and he doesn't want to be Clint Eastwood. He wants to be the Scorpio, you know, like that's who he wants to be in this situation. Yeah, that sounds like a strange character. There's a, two other things that, again, I want to thank Susan for her contributions. One is, uh, I think I was a little bit focused on that basement window. Now, my point was, sure, somebody could shimmy through there without messing with that cobweb or the cobweb could have been rebuilt or whatever. But, you know, it was pointed out that the the basement window, kind of like the pineapple, the mag light, the ransom letter, isn't necessarily the linchpin to this whole thing because there could have been plenty of other ways for a person to get into that house, including a number of extra keys that were apparently out there among staff, friends, and other people who had the key presently and formerly along with perhaps one that was kept outside underneath a, a statue or something like so many people have done over the years the the extra key deal yeah and another thing remember this is christmas time their house is decorated i've read some stuff that you know maybe they had the uh, extension cords or christmas lights or this and that that not i, I think in the police's follow-up uh, not every window not every door was maybe as secured as John thought it was because in his mind, he's like, well, yeah, I locked up and he's thinking I locked the front door and I locked this. But I think you said in the first episode that they ultimately found there were like five or six areas that were not secure. But the only one that looked like it had been disturbed really was that that basement one. Because I remember we remarked, like, if you go around my house right now, I'm, I'm sure you'd find things that I think are locked. But they are not. I think that's a really good point. People do get kind of hung up. Oh, well, they had to come in this way. Well, there's other ways somebody could. They, their house is huge. What we say? 7,000, almost 7,500 square feet. Lots of windows, lots of doors, lots of access points. It certainly wouldn't have to be, oh, it's just this one, one way. Yeah. Again, I don't see that it's impossible for someone to get in that little window. I told my story about getting in that window one time. Not that window at that house, but a window just like it. So I think it's entirely possible. But also keep in mind that there were plenty of other people that, that would have had access with this. And like you said, they didn't use the security alarm because it was annoying and they didn't need it. Yeah. You know, we've kind of talked through some of this evidence and, and some of the things that were maybe a little more interesting or maybe to us not interesting, like the pineapple, but things that people tend to get hung up on. So stepping back now, uh, I know you said you're not firmly in, in either camp, but you just have some final kind of closing thoughts about the case or where it is or what should be done or who you think might... Uh, which direction you lean toward or anything like that, Bob? Yeah, my guess is it was somebody from the outside, but I'm not going to tell anybody. I know it 100%. I'm positive it was somebody from the outside. You know, come come show me some evidence. Show me whose DNA this was. That would be the primary thing I'd, I'd want to know before I'm really convinced. Yeah, I think DNA. I, I and, and again, you come back to this, like, I could make a lot better of a kind of an informed or educated guess. If I'm looking at the files that the police look at, which, of course, I, it's an open investigation. I'm not suggesting that I should have access to them, but certainly that changes the dynamics of things. And people don't realize you know, people are so quick and I don't even think they, they understand how prejudiced they are by media coverage and media coverage and, and our sort of our initial first feelings and thoughts and, and ideas about something. It really prejudices the way that we view things. And in this case, I don't think there's any doubt that some of the early media coverage and some of the things that came out were inaccurate and were inaccurate in a way that, that certainly reflected poorly on the Ramses. Um, no, I think the slant was definitely there that 
oh, look, you have this poor baby child that's being forced into these beauty pageants by these horrible rich people. And now she ends up dead in their house on Christmas. I think the slant was definitely against the Ramses in the beginning. And I'm not trying to like underdog and overcompensate and say, well, therefore it can't be them. After reading and listening to everything, I tend to think they were not involved. I don't think any of them were involved. But like I said, I'm not going to tell you you're dummy if you believe that. Prove me wrong. I don't, I don't know. You know, maybe somebody's got the daggone videotape that we're missing or produces that DNA. That's my thoughts on it. I think it's much more plausible that there's somebody that had a beef with John or a severe mental illness. You know, I can't just dismiss, oh, well, a mother, father, or brother would never do that to their child or sibling because we've seen there are cases where mothers, fathers, siblings have done horrible things. While it's not common, thank God, it's not impossible. Right. No, I think that's a great point. And one thing I just thought about, I want to take a second. A lot of people will be quick to say, well, the Ramses are guilty because they didn't cooperate enough in the investigation and they didn't do this and they didn't do that. Well, one, remember, John's worth, uh, what, six and a half million dollars at this point in time. He's a sophisticated businessman. He probably deals with attorneys on a regular basis. He had an attorney already that was like, you know, kind of the family, I don't know, family attorney, personal attorney, whatever. It would not be unusual for somebody from, you know, that with that type of background to think like, well, let me talk to my lawyers and see what they tell me to do. And guess what? If you called me and said that one of your kids ended up dead in your house and you had no idea what happened and there was this funky ransom note. You know what I would tell you? Keep your mouth shut. Exactly. And hire an attorney. And if you can't afford one, don't say anything and I'll be there in five minutes. Well, in this case, is kind of proof of why that's important because look here, you have on both sides of the spectrum, you got the police almost immediately going with it's an inside job and you got the DAs going, it's an outside job. If you're the Ramses and the police have decided you've done it, nothing you can do is going to help. I don't know when exactly, but John Ramsey lost confidence in the police and their capabilities at some point. So he might've been thinking, uh, got a better shot of figuring this out, at least without these folks, because they're not. Yeah. I mean, you know, he went on and he's hired some pretty notable people to work on the case and he, you know, he's reached out to the governor recently and he seems to be pretty still involved. And some people say, you know, that's him trying to continue to assert control and, you know, shape the narrative and avoid, you know, stay in the loop, which, like you said, was I there? No. Do I know who did it? Sure don't. Wish I did, but I don't. So is it possible that anybody, anybody did it in the house, out of the house? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm not closed off to that. And people are sick and for any number of reasons do all kinds of crazy, horrible things. So the notion that anybody anywhere that we've talked about could have done it, I think is is 100% within the realm of possibility. And I'm not closed off to that. But I agree with you that for me, you know, originally I, I used to think it was probably some kind of like pedophile, like a psycho sadist, kind of when you're saying somebody with mental health issues. Honestly, a guy like Gary Oliva, who just screams, dude, yeah, this guy seems like he fits the bill. Somebody like that really was sort of who I used to think was probably involved or responsible. Maybe that's still the case, but I, I do now tend to lean a little bit more toward this notion that it's not that they're mutually exclusive. Maybe this guy's a pedophile or a sadist who also happened to have a grudge against John. But I tend to lean toward, I think that's sort of the defining factor is this is somebody who feels like John is, is deserves to be punished for whatever reason. I think it's somebody who feels small and wants to feel big. 
and sees this as an opportunity. And I think that ransom letter, quote unquote, was their 15 minutes of fame. Like they looked at it like this is my chance to be heard. And I'm going to say all the things I want to say, and I'm going to say them however I want to say them. And they're wordy and they're sarcastic and they're passive aggressive. And they have lots of issues. Personally, that's what I think. And and there's been a lot about, well, you know, Patsy couldn't be excluded. And that's true. She couldn't be excluded, but she was pretty far down on the, you know, well, she can't be excluded, but she couldn't be included. And there wasn't even like a, we think she's the source of it. We just can't exclude her. But here's a question for you. Whoever wrote this, wrote it in her her pad, right? Like in her thing that was by the phone, her notebook. And there were other things in there that she had written. If, if it is an intruder, and they are a whack job, because clearly they are if they're doing all these things. And they're, they're willing to spend time there because that's part of this like wicked, crazy fantasy that they have. And really what they're getting out of it is this afterward moment of reveling in what they've done and what, what it's what the kind of the havoc it's going to wreak. Is it not wild to think? I mean, anybody who's going to write this is going to want to kind of mask their handwriting. They're going to want to make it look different as much as they can, or at least some. You would whether, think. Whether they realize it or not. So is it not crazy to think as they're sitting there, they're flipping, you know, maybe they look through this book. And they read some of her stuff and then they maybe try to write it a little bit like her handwriting. And so maybe to some extent they're successful in camouflaging. And, and I think there's been some things on some uh, websites uh, that I've looked at that as you look through the letter, because it's long, you can see some things start to degrade from the beginning to the end in terms of how some of the characters are written. You can almost see them slowly change through the letter. And that lends itself to the idea that whoever's writing it, whoever, and I'm not saying I know, starts out with more of a fake writing and by the end is getting more into their own natural handwriting. The bottom line on the handwriting is at the end of the day, there, there was no smoking gun of the handwriting analyst saying, this is the person you need to go after. Right. Unlike yeah. what you see on TV, it was more like real life where the handwriting analysis said, we can't say this person didn't write it, but that's about as close as we can get. We can't tell you who wrote this. Yeah. And then excluded a ton of people and spent some calls, maybe some people that there should be a concerted effort to try to collect writing samples from more people who were adjacent to this case. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Hopefully that's happening. I know there are plenty of people who are working on this case. You've got uh, Jameson, you got Lou Smith's family uh, that are trying to track down people and get DNA and get handwriting samples and compare that stuff to exclude people. And that's really, I think you got to look at everybody that was in that orbit. And just keep excluding, excluding, excluding until you find somebody who you go, oh, we can't exclude that person. Yeah, I agree. Find that DNA match. Then I'm I'm interested. So I, I guess the last thing I am, yeah, DNA. And, and I hope that they're working toward, that Boulder PD is working toward the genetic genealogy stuff where they can take those DNA samples and they can try to run them and see uh, who the person might be related to and, and use some of those experts to figure that out. Because that'll give you an answer. You know, when you're just trying to find a match in CODIS, it's, well, do they match or not? Well, there's only one person, theoretically, who's going to match that. So you're really looking for that needle in a haystack. But with the genetic genealogy, you know, you're able to basically, you find anybody who's related and you can kind of work your way to say, okay, well, now who fits the bill that is related to that person who would have been in Boulder in 96? And, you know, you go from there. On this idea of DNA testing and sort of a resolution of the case, on December 28th of 2023, the Boulder Police Department put out a press release regarding John Bonet's investigation titled uh, Homicide Investigation Update, December 2023. And I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but the relevant part of it, which, spoiler alert, there is no crazy announcement here, but 
The relevant part of their release said, recently the Boulder Police Department convened a panel of outside experts, Colorado Cold Case Review Team, to review the John Bonet Ramsey homicide investigation. The purpose of the review was to generate additional investigative recommendations and determine if updated technologies and or forensic testing might produce new intelligence or leads to solve the case. The Colorado Cold Case Review Team spent the past year preparing for the review. The team is comprised of professional, investigative, analytical, and forensic experts from across Colorado, including the FBI, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, Boulder County District Attorney's Office, and numerous other entities, including public and private forensic laboratories with expertise in cold case homicide investigations. An intensive effort digitized all evidence to create a comprehensive and searchable database containing thousands of information files, bringing together more than 21,000 tips over a thousand interviews conducted across 17 states and two foreign countries and samples from more than 200 different individuals, including handwriting, DNA, fingerprints, and shoe prints. The case file consists of nearly 2,500 pieces of evidence and roughly 40,000 reports with more than 1 million pages documenting the investigation. A fresh inventory of all collected evidence was made available for investigative review, which would not have been possible without the assistance of the FBI. BPD and the Boulder District Attorney are currently in the process of reviewing and prioritizing the team's recommendations. To preserve the integrity of the investigation, the specific recommendations will not be made public at this time. So basically, uh, they're working on it, and that's uh, that's about all they're telling us. But I'm glad that they're working on it. I hope that they will continue to work on it and work hard. And hopefully, through these new forensic technologies and other means, they're able to solve this case. And we see cold cases getting solved every day. Just because this case is 27 years old, the important thing is people keep working on it. People keep talking about it. People keep asking questions and trying to figure out what happened December 26, 1996. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. 